Good morning, everyone. We're going to take a look at what God's Word says today. We've been in a series, How Will People Notice Jesus in You? And I had kind of a side topic each week about where that might be and um, how Jesus might, how people might see and notice uh, Jesus in us. And this week's message, I'd like to speak to us about, I think people notice Jesus in us and how we respond to opposition. I started to think about having somebody raise their hand if you've ever had opposition in your life. But let me ask this. Has anybody never had opposition in their life? Because I'd really like to meet you. <laughs> Does anyone not have opposition going on right now? That might even be something that would be worth a, a praise moment. We do, don't we? And there's opposition going on. And Jesus gave us some instructions to how to interact with that and how to respond to it. And I'd like to speak to that this morning. And so to do that, I want to invite you, Heavenly Father, to come and be here with us. Jesus, you seem to appear into rooms with the disciples and just be there. And you promised when you would go away and when you went away that you would send your, ask your Father and He would send the Holy Spirit to us. And I ask this Holy Spirit you would come right now and speak to us, interact with us, with your word. Amen. Well, I spoke a couple of weeks ago um, about how people would see Jesus in us when we give us our give your best. Let me ask you a question this week. Does it feel like people in our world are becoming more and more disagreeable? I don't mean that they disagree with you. But I mean, just the response becomes disagreeable. Do you, do you have a sense of that sometimes? Just the attitude of kind of the culture and where we're at, it's become more than just I disagree, but respond in a way that's disagreeable. Becoming more aggressive, a little more rude. And in some cases, kind of proud about it. Like, I'm from this area, so I deserve to you know, have an attitude. Have you sensed that and feel that sometimes? I went down to Pennsylvania uh, last week for eight days with some youth, and it was a, a great experience. And I've got a, you know, you're there, we were there for eight days, and you get tired after a while, especially with all the intensity of what's going on day after day. And I'm backing out of the driveway with a, my car full of some youth, and it's in a casual, quiet Delaware neighborhood just a few miles across the border from Pennsylvania. These folks have opened up their home and are going to host it for us. And I'm just backing out of the driveway. There's a car coming down the street, but it's a 20 mile per hour. I mean, there's plenty of time. You kind of see what's going on. And as I'm pulling out of the driveway and start to move forward, the person just lays on the horn and makes the most vile, aggressive faces uh, as driving along, like I'm in his way. And I felt all the eyes of all the youth turning on me like, how are you going to respond to this, <laughs> to this moment? And I'm not really sure I know, knew how to respond, except I guess I, he's in a hurry, a bigger hurry than we are this morning. But have you felt that sometimes? Just, uh, you know, I didn't know I took that grocery cart in front of you. I, I didn't know I bumped you in that line. I didn't know, and the response seems to be more harsh. 
But when I spoke to you a few weeks ago about giving our best, I, I quoted and used some quotes from a famous old football coach, Vince Lombardi. And sport has always played a big part of my life and what I've done. It has, it has influenced me as both, both participating and, and watching and reading about the lives of folks. And there's someone else I'd like to bring to our attention this morning and lead into this message. And it's an old basketball coach. He coached for 29 seasons from 1946 until 1975. His name's John Wooden. And some of you may have heard of him. The last 27 years, he was at UCLA. And in those last 12 years of his career, get this, the last 12 years of his career, they won 10 national championships in basketball. You see what goes on in the final basketball games, the Final Four, the March Madness. If you can imagine winning it one time, winning it twice, but in his last 12 seasons, they won 10 national championships. And in four of those years, yeah, there you go. And in four of the I wasn't a big UCLA fan, but we could be. Um, in, a, in four of those seasons, they were unbeaten. And a lot of folks have looked at his life and looked at his coaching style and how he motivated, how he interacted with people and, and, and put some books and articles together. And one of those guys named Mike Schultz published an article, 14 John Wooden Leadership Qualities. And I started reading that article, and the first thing that John Wooden, or that he notes about John Wooden, is this. When it comes to coaching and leadership, and leading winners, and leading to success, Agree to, to disagree, but don't be disagreeable. And the author explained that it's okay and we should always maintain a positive outlook in life. And we can agree to disagree, but please just don't be disagreeable. Now, this wasn't the first time I heard this quote. After I became a Christian in high school and went off to college, I started trying to absorb what I could, and there was a lot of radio programs where I grew up in Oklahoma. Um, radio, and I'd listen to these radio preachers. And one of them, an old radio preacher, a Ph.D. theologian named J. Vernon McGee, a pastor and preacher, old Presbyterian. He was, had a radio show called Through the Bible. And he would preach and come on the radio every day, and he would go through the Bible. And I would, I would listen to this as I was kind of going back and forth to school or to work. And he had this distinct voice and this distinct style and every now and then, if you're going verse by verse through the Bible, it would take a long time. And I didn't catch all the messages, but every now and then he'd come on a subject and you could tell it was controversial. Like, mm, I'm not sure I understood it quite that way. And he would recognize it, be wise, wise enough to know and say, I know you may not agree with me. And many of you are going to write in right now and you've already got your pens out and you're writing your letters to me. And so I don't care if you disagree and I enjoy reading your opinions, but please don't be disagreeable. And that affected me. Just as a young guy going into college, like, hey, that's a kind of a good attitude to have. I mean, not everybody around me is going to be agreeable, but I should not be disagreeable. And it affected me. It affected how I looked at life and, and how I interacted with people and, and then being hired right out of college into kind of a supervisor-manager role, managing people, saying, I think it'd be good if I could have an attitude in a group that was not disagreeable. There's nothing worse than just being in a kind of contentious atmosphere. Would you agree with me? Yeah. And so uh, I carried that with me 
into my working years. And I've noticed something in the recent past when we think about how people become a little more aggressive and disagreeable. And I started thinking about it this past couple of weeks. And up until the recent decade or so, I think in the U.S., depending on where you live in the, in the U.S., when there was a discord or disagreement, um, it seemed that there was more in common with people's basic beliefs, their worldview, and a disagreeability kind of culture didn't permeate itself. But now the worldview's changed. Especially if we have a Judeo-Christian worldview that this is God's Word and everything in it's true and we're going to try to live that way because our world doesn't always agree with us and agree, agree with where we're at. And political correctness, which started as a term as I looked and read into it, today it's received as, oh, politically correct, it's the right way to be, Right? When people say if you're politically correct, you're kind of in the, at least in that general position of you're not offending anybody. Yes or no? Right? Early on, the term was applied to those with strict government kind of sociological things like communism and stuff. So you're going to be politically correct because you're going to say what the government wants you to say. And it's evolved, like many terms and words, to become more like, okay, if I'm politically correct, then I'm. I'm not saying anything that's really uh, literally offensive today, right? But for us as Christians, we've almost been afraid to even speak up sometimes. Because our worldview and the world's view are different in many places. And if we speak up, we're looked at as being disagreeable, combative, a hater of whatever. And so being politically correct now for a Christian has become like, oh, I don't know if I, you know, I'll just be quiet. And there's some great debaters out there, great folks that can debate and take some kind of ideology and profess it very well. And we don't speak up to it, and so our quietness becomes a political correctness or an agreeability with something. And within our hearts, we say, mm, I'm not sure I agree. We want to be at peace with everyone. And we should strive for peace. But there's a real tension that exists. And I hope I'm painting the picture for us a little bit. There's a real tension that exists because we're in a spiritual war that surfaces itself sometimes in the visible realm. More and more. And I believe there's more than just a rising tide. Um, there's really a tsunami of change in the world culture and what the Bible believes and the Bible teaches and says and what our beliefs might be and what the world view is. You think about how Christianity was introduced. A man from Nazareth, a town that wasn't considered where the best people came from, went around his country, a carpenter by trade, doing miracles, teaching things, combative against his own local leadership. His own country was held hostile, if you will, under the bondage of the Roman Empire. 
And finally, pushed to the brink of tension within his own religious leaders, they turned him over, betrayed by even one of his own. And they turned him over to the Roman leaders, and they took him outside and treated him like they did many of the common criminals. And they drove nails in his hands and feet, and they crucified and killed him. But something bizarre happened. Three days later, the grave's empty. That should well up a little bit of uh, good stuff within you. I'm really glad it was. And not just empty and like, where is he? The Bible tells us in Acts he started appearing to all kinds of people for a period of 40 days with evidence that I'm alive, he says. That's Jesus. Do you get it? And in spite of all the opposition, all the tension in their culture, I mean, their leader has just been captured, crucified, and dead, and he's raised back again. This band of disciples and their followers, some 120 of them, gathered, that's all that was left, but that was enough, gathered together, and they're waiting because he said, I want you to go wait because I'm going to send somebody to help you. I'm going to send someone just like I promised. And they're waiting. And the Holy Spirit came and through the room. You all know the story. And our whole civilization, the whole world changed. Did suddenly the Roman Empire, oh yes, oh yes, that's Jesus. We didn't know he was God's son and, and turned it. No, it went hundreds of years of persecution, of torture, of abandonment. Last night we were away at the campsite and it came to my mind, can you imagine how many early Christians 2,000 years ago had to abandon and flee from everything and they lived outside of their towns and cities in hiding, in caves, in labyrinths around the area. In great opposition. Jesus prepared him for that. And he had some words for it. But in our culture today, it's almost reverting back. We've gone from being a non-Christian world at the time of Jesus to almost a Christian world to... I would have to say um, we're almost a minority again, at least in worldview, depending where you're looking at things and how you're looking at them. I may be exaggerating a little bit, but I don't think so. I think there's a growing tide. And we of all people should know how to respond. Would you like to know what Jesus had to say? This spirit of disagreeability is not only growing in our culture, it's festering within interpersonal relationships. I heard one of the pastors, Phil Chorlian, come down and preach to, teach to the youth. And he had a, a statement. He goes, he said something like this. There's been a study among groups of people. And out of every seven words that shared, six of them are more discouraging than they are encouraging. And he, he, he used that kind of analogy. I'm from Jersey and we're used to you know, kind of getting on to each other. Even friends, when they come in the room, it's like the first comments are more of like, hey, where you been? What's going on? You know, what's happening in your life? What, you know, and kind of getting down. And we tend to speak that way. And so the cultures become more disagreeable. There's been more animosity and we actually flourish it and build it up. And how do we respond to that? So let's look to see what the Word of God says. And Father, again, I just want to pray as we open up your word that you would make it clear to us. Thank you, Jesus. 
We find a story in Luke chapter 6. If you have a Bible, if you don't have one, there's there, and I think we've got the words there. And I also, uh, thank you Bernadette, we printed them on the uh, program insert today so that they're on the program insert for you as well. Because I wanted you to see there's something connecting reading and seeing and hearing God's Word at the same time that impresses us in a different way. Here's what he said. Let me just read the passage. But to you who are willing to listen, I say, this is Jesus, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks. And when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great. And you will be truly acting as children of the Most High. For he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate just as your Father is compassionate. I think Jesus gave us four, I, I, I found four kind of instructions he gave us in this passage. And the first one is this. In verse 27, he says, love your enemies. This may be kind of obvious, and we just took a poll before we started, but we're going to have opposition. Uh, you're going to have enemies in life. We have and will have opposition. Jesus did. Is it right? No, it's better to live in a world of peace, right? In an environment of peace all the time. Things are better when we live in an environment of peace. I think Jesus is preparing us to say, there will be times, though, there will be opposition. We almost want to raise our children in a, in a bubble like they live in kind of this place where you won't run into conflict. And if you do, we're going to shelter them for, from it and how to deal with it. But there's a rude awakening what happens as soon as, well, at least you get to middle school, not probably now in kindergarten or go to public school or anywhere else like that because you're going to run into people that are disagreeable. You're going to run into opposition. And we need to prepare ourselves to how to deal with it. And so Jesus acknowledges that we will. The word that he uses here, he uses the word, it's translated in most of the Bibles that you have in front of you, inversions is enemy enemy seems like a strong word doesn't it i mean your enemy and it it's translates to various other words like being hateful odious hostile repulsive obnoxious opposing do you have anybody like that in your life obnoxious opposing repulsive please don't start shaking your heads because other people might be saying but i think we do and as much as I tried to get along and it thought I tried to get along with everybody, every now and then I'd be almost surprised with how repulsive I must be to somebody else and, and how they would treat me or how they would turn around, what they would say and how they would respond. 
I think there's kind of, I think there's four kinds of enemies. Let me just lay this out for you for a minute. Think about this. I think we have overt opposition. They're the kinds that are openly hostile towards us. They don't try to hide it. They disagree with you. They not, don't naturally like you. And they'll look for a place to cause you to fall and stumble. They're almost predatory. Major wars and conflicts because of differing ideas about beliefs or attempts to conquer have created overt enemies. Obvious ones like Nazi Germany or the effects of Pearl Harbor made enemies overnight. The 9-11 attacks are examples really of overt enemies. Not trying to hide. We're coming out of the hiding and we're coming after you. In the spiritual realm, you knew I had to go here. We have an enemy. He's God's enemy, really. The Bible uses a couple of words. calls him Satan. In another language, he's called the devil. And he carries many names, but principally it points to one who is the accuser. One who is the adversary. And we tend to think if we don't talk about him, maybe he'll just go away. And we feel that way sometimes with our overt enemies. If we'll just avoid them and stay on the other side of the world from them, they'll just go away. But in his case, he doesn't. He's the declared enemy of God. This is a somber moment, but I wanted you to hear it. He's the declared enemy of God from the very beginning. And if you turn to God, and you look to God, and you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you've inherited an enemy. He didn't want you to be part of God's family to begin with, and he's not happy that you are. And Jesus knew this. Remember where Jesus was coming off of this? He has been in ministry. He just was baptized by John the Baptist. And what does he do? He goes off in the wilderness, and what happens? For 40 days. Without, he's fasting, and who comes after him? Adversary number one, numero uno comes after him. I believe Jesus wants to tell us in this passage, he wants to teach us how to interact with the enemy, both in the spiritual realm and the earthly realm. You might say, I don't really get it. I mean, I think we blame the devil for too many things. Peter did write this. He said, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy. He wasn't speaking to Jesus. He wasn't speaking to God. He was writing to us. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion. He's a predator. Looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. Peter wrote that. There's overt enemies out there. And one stands at the spiritual level and he's ready to leech into the physical realm. Not very encouraging, am I, this morning. There's covert enemies. Covert enemies are the ones who are hidden, the sneaky ones. The ones who aren't usually declared, but sometimes are declared enemies. Jesus dealt with these. He was constantly followed around. He was constantly followed around by the Pharisees, those who were in opposition to what he's teaching, waiting for him to make a mistake, to trip up in something in the law that they could accuse him and point a finger. 
Oh, He healed on the Sabbath again. His disciples took grain as they were walking through a field. And so on and so forth. They're around Him. We have to watch out for these, this kind of opposition in our life. Because they show up and everybody else says, Oh, aren't they great? They really are gifted and talented. And the Pharisees were. They knew the law. They had huge sections of the Old Testament to memory. They could quote it to the jot and tittle. They could read sections and know if it was misprinted and tear it up. They knew the law. And people, when they walked in the room, their presence was obvious. Were they welcome in the synagogue? Well, yes. Well, like Jesus said, okay, all Pharisees, please get out and scribes the law. I mean, they were more than welcome there. They were, uh, they were looked up to. And sometimes our opposition is that way. They're around us and with us, and, and people say, oh, aren't they gifted and talented? I'm so glad they're here. And you're thinking, oh boy, I, I just feel at odds. And some of you are looking at me like, oh, I, I can't believe he's just saying this, but it's actually true. We have people at odds with us. Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. Thank you, Jeff, for encouraging with this message today. We also have casual enemies, casual opposition. They are this, these people. They come in con you're in constant contact with them throughout life. Uh, I took Alan to our first Patriots game last fall. And it was a lot of fun in the line. You guys have all seen how they got like 5 billion people kind of funneling into one place, you know, and you have to go into this one little aisle place to get into like, you know, 70 different turnstiles. And now they have to, you know, scan you and everything else, right? Anybody been there? You see, it was like that little place where it nodded in like that became a place of great opposition. Among those who are all there for the same common purpose to go root for the New England Patriots. And we saw shoving break out and things like, oh, I'm not sure this is safe. I thought the game was going to be in there where the, where the conflict and, and, the, and the hitting was going to occur. But it happens like that. It happens in that backing out of that driveway. It happens in the, in the parking and driving and traffic and road rage and ball games and people, it, just the casual context and, and this disagreement, this opposition, and suddenly we're uh, opposition. And then the last category are those that we hate to think about but are the most painful in our lives. You might think, oh man, the overt one and covert ones, those are pretty bad and these others get in our way. But there's another kind of opposition. I won't call it enemy, but I'm going to use opposition that comes up and those I'll call it friendly fire. Uh, the ones that are part of your own friend network or family or close into you. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But my guess is if I knew your lives intimately, there's someone in your own family that somehow you're at opposition with or have been at some time. And it's hard. It's very hard. Could be your best neighbor next door. You've been around for years and something comes up and there's a conflict. Those are the interactions that cause the greatest amount of grief. The greatest amount of strife. I've seen it in my own family. In aunts and uncles trying to debate about a will. And what was supposed to be a time of grieving and remembrance becomes a time of you fill in the blank. The talk about all this opposition and enemies is a little important. And if you'll just follow with me just for a few more minutes. Because they do exist. And God designed and created our world and His creation to live at peace. But the effects of sin and disobedience have disrupted that. 
it's important you heard what I just say because the, as we end this message today, it's going to tie back in. The effects of sin, disobedience, and rebellion against God have set things in motion to disrupt what God intended to be peace and relationship. The second point in your program insert is this. I think Jesus teaches from this section, verse 27. He says, love your enemies. Okay, so if we have some, covert, overt, casual, friendly, whatever you might want to identify them at, he tells us to love them. And many of you know there's several different words, four principal words that are used in the Greek language about love. You know, the relationship in a family, storgos, and the relationship between a man and a woman, kind of that love and boyfriend-girlfriend kind of thing, relationship between friends. But there's another love, the agape love that spoke of, the love from God. The selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. That's the word that's used here. Can't he have just said we'd be friendly, kind of like these guys? <laughs> I mean, I kept looking through it saying, uh, is, that the, is that the right translation of the word? And it was. It is. He didn't want us to just be friendly to them. He wants us to love them in a sacrificial way. In a selfless way. Oh, well, Jesus doesn't know my friends, you might think. Oh, I, I think he does. Uh, his had a friend that betrayed him to death. Close in. He had family members say, I think he's crazy. Can we get him out of here? I mean, he dealt with everything we've dealt with. It's not then if we respond. It's how. And he says, I want you to respond in love. Well, Jeff, I'm still not getting a lot of direction. That sounds good, but how do I love my enemies? I mean, I throw up a peace flag everywhere I go. How do I do this? And he gave us some points, I think, out of this section. The first is this. Our response to opposition should be motivated and driven by agape love in first doing good. Doing good to those who hate us. Hate? Hate? I mean, I'm using words today that we typically don't like to preach from. Enemies. Hate. Covert enemies. Overt enemies. And Jesus taught about it. He stood in front of hundreds of people and preached this message. I want you to love your enemies. I want you to do good to those who hate you. We're to be purposefully and to purposefully take positive action towards those who are in opposition against us. Did you hear that? We're supposed to purposefully take a good action towards those who are opposed to us. Then he says this in verse 28. I want you to bless them. What? I better read that again. I'm not sure you got that right. Maybe I misread that. Bless those who curse you. Oh my goodness, not only do I have to love those who hate me, do good to those who hate me, I have to bless those who curse me. What does he mean? It does not mean to give approval of their lives and what they're doing. The word bless here is the same word we get a eulogy in speaking kind words over someone. It's the idea, I'm going to speak kindness towards them. That's really hard when someone's cursing you. 
that's really hard when you're a car full of youth and you're concerned for their lives backing out and somebody makes the grossest, vilest faces and distorted and looking at you and you're like, oh, hi. Um, sorry about that. But I'm supposed to be show kindness. I'm supposed to speak kindness over their lives. Again, it's not meaning I'm condoning them. But I'm to speak in kindness to them. This is quite different what what our culture is growing up and kind of setting it on a pedestal right now, and that's trash talk. It used to be kind of scouring people who did a lot of trash talk on the basketball court or on a football field or in the workplace to being like, ah, they're the people that can give it out, dish it, you know, they can take it. It's kind of like you wear it like I'm calloused, I'm, I'm proud of it. I can, I can dish it out and take it. Jesus said, no. I want you to speak kindness over them. And then if it doesn't get bizarre enough, Jesus says this. Pray for those who hurt you. Oh my goodness. Not only do I have to love them in a sacrificial way, however that means, now I've got to do good to them. Now I have to speak kindness over them. And now I'm to pray for them. This is so contrary to human nature. Would you agree with me? Is this so contrary to human nature? Someone abuses you. Someone says something that you don't deserve. Even if you do deserve it, you don't deserve the disagreeability and the way they stood up for you. And our response is not to be in the physical. In the physical human nature that we all carry and that's been kind of ground up into us because of the sin nature that's among us. He said, I want you to break through and I want you to live by the Spirit and I want you to love. I want you to do good. I want you to speak kind and bless and I want you to pray for them. That's how I want you to deal with the opposition. This is totally foreign to our world. Yes or no? It's totally foreign. Why was Jesus teaching us to respond this way? Well, if it wasn't enough, He said, before I tell you, but wasn't enough, let me do, give you one more hint. I want you to respond sacrificially to them. They slap you in the cheek, turn the other one. They ask for your coat, give them your shirt too. He wants us to give sacrificially to them. Respond sacrificially to them. In all these responses, please note this. I'm not saying that we're to turn over and to take a beating. If anybody knows me, it's not my nature. In the physical realm or in the spiritual realm. I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. I think he was saying, first off, I don't want you to compromise or hide the truth. And secondly, I think I want you to be open or open yourselves. I don't want you to open yourselves up to harm or your family unnecessarily. I don't think Jesus was saying either one of those things. He always wants us to speak the truth. Remember how he responded to Satan in the great temptation. Did he come up with a great dialogue? No, he quoted Scripture. He, he quotes Scripture. When the Pharisees come up and they're challenging them, he said, haven't you read? Read what? The local philosophy manuals? No. He was saying, haven't you read your own Scriptures? We can't be afraid of this book and what it says. And we may not have the most glorified interpretation or the way to articulate it, but we can't hide it. 
And when Jesus says, when you love your enemies, when you're to do good, when you're to pray for them, when you're to bless them, speak kindness to them, Jesus always did it in a way that responded with the truth. He never compromised the truth. The truth will prevail. Secondly, I don't think He meant for us to put our our families or ourselves in harm's way unnecessarily. There are reasons why self-defense is necessary, obligatory. I can't think I want to promote any of them right now. But we're not to be retaliatory. We're not to be aggressive. We're not to, when we've finally won that opinion or that lawsuit or that idea against somebody else to move in and make the kill. That's part of our nature. Now, part of our culture, we won and now I'm just going to rub their face in it. (laughs) That's what the world says. Go for it. Go for it. You got them down. Take them down. Pin them. Put them in a hold. And it seems Jesus says, no, that's not what I want you to do. I want you to lay out the truth, lay out what's right, and do good. If they want to walk away and say this, go ahead and take it. If they want to speak harshly to you and curse you, speak back to them in kindness. There's a proverb that says, when you do that, you'll heap burning coals upon them because they'll feel the sense of guilt and shame that you're turning and responding in love to something they're being so hateful and disagreeable about. The last point I want to make in this section is this. Though we have opposition, let's live not to make more. Would you like to... I mean, it seems kind of obvious, but we live in a culture like, let's push to the limit. You're not on my side, then you're against me. And I don't think Jesus was promoting that at all. Look, it's called the golden rule for a reason. Matthew quotes it this way. It's in verse 31 of this section we just read. Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. That's called the golden rule for a reason. Don't go around making enemies. Don't go around looking for them. This is the essence, he says, of all that was taught in the law and the prophets. Powerful words. Powerful words. So how will Jesus know, know, how will people notice Jesus in us because I respond this way? If you all agree with me that there's some opposition in your life and you wish that God would do something about it, and you wish that it would just go away and be dealt with, you wish it would get better, I think there's a formula that he's just laid out for us. I hate to call it formula, but there's a path to, that we can follow that could make a change in the world. And they would see something different than what they normally see. And that is, they would see God in us. Look what he says at the very last end of this section. If you'll respond this way, he says down in verse 35, love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them, then your reward from heaven will be very great and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High. For He is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. They won't be seeing Jeff anymore. I hope they'll be seeing Jesus. They won't be seeing you anymore. I hope they'll be seeing Jesus. When people strike out and lash out, when they curse, when they hate, when they're opposed to you, our response is not to be the same. Our response is to be in love. 
and to pray and to speak kindness and to give sacrificially to them. We've got to remember our roots. And this is the hard thing. Because sometimes we forget where we came from. Jesus calls us all out to have a positive spiritual benefit to others. He calls us if we live out this way, it'll benefit them and it'll benefit us. It's a spiritual thing. An incredible spiritual thing you could win somebody over just because you respond in love. Paul wrote this, don't forget your roots. This includes you who are once far away from God. You were His enemies. He's speaking to us as believers. In another place, he said, since our relationship with God was restored by the death of His Son while we were still His enemies, we were in, we were in conflict with God. We may look back on, on our salvation experience and think, oh God, was, that was so great. It was such a great moment. I was just moving in close to God. And the Scriptures tell us, actually, we were in, I was in opposition with God. And unless the Holy Spirit moved in and dealt with me and interacted with me, I would still be in opposition with God. But He did move in. He did interact with me. And He drew me into a relationship. He reconciled me with His Father, with God. That word reconcile is a word we only really talk about sometimes when we read the Bible and talk in legal terms. But it has to do with restoring a, an enemy to family. An enemy to a relationship that's healthy and good. How do we respond to our enemies? How will people see Jesus in us? And how we respond to them in love, just like Jesus did with us. How can you be that way, they might say to you? How can you respond to her that way? She was so mean and hateful. If I was you and they give you a list of six things you should do, anybody ever gave you a list like that? Here's what you should do. First, start with your Facebook account and you'll do the following things. And then go, you know, Twitter this and then Snapchat this. And then, you, you know, it goes on and on. That's not what Jesus said. Matter of fact, he wrote that we have a mission. A mission, he says, of reconciling people to God, just like we were. Listen to what Paul writes as I close this message. Christ's love controls us. Agape love. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive His new life will no longer live for themselves. We can't do it like the world. We're not living for ourselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we've stopped evaluating, Paul writes. We've stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know Him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all this is a gift from God who brought us back to Himself through Christ. And God has given us this task. 
Here's our task. Are you ready for it? Of reconciling people to him. Of turning what was animosity and enemies and oppositions to God. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. That's how we respond to our enemies. Come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up now. And I'd like, you to, I'd like to pose a few questions for you. This has been a hard message. And I debate about giving, and to be honest with you, through the course of the week, I actually felt opposition. Yeah, I'm going to preach about opposition. Now I feel it. What I thought was going to be this rambunctious, kind of great, upbeat message turned out to be, no, I think when Jesus said it, it was a stillness just like this room today. Are you kidding me? That's how I'm supposed to? And every one of you are thinking of somebody. Who is not thinking of somebody? You're all thinking, oh, man, there's somebody. How do I deal with that person? I think they were excluded from the list that Jesus just spoke to. Guess what? Bad news. They're not. As we close, I want to give you a few questions. Do you need prayer today because of opposition that you're facing? Someone's coming after you and attacking you? Or maybe unwittingly you've become the aggressor. And you'd like prayer to, I need to stop this. I need to make a change and respond like Jesus. Or maybe today you're feeling some pain from the blows that have been afflicted on you from the opposition. If you would like prayer for that, I invite you to come up today. So as we sing this last song, and if you could dim the lights, I'd like you to just just think for a few minutes. Why don't everybody stand? Why don't everybody stand? I'd like to think just for a few minutes where you've been in opposition. Remember your roots. Give thanks to God. Because while you were in opposition to Him, He loved you.